Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this is our 100th episode. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> it's, it's the centennial. That's exciting. I know. How do we do I, that? Uh, I honestly I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I know that we have our listeners to thank, really. Well, well, first, we've got one listener to thank. In because particular, yes. We, yeah, because we, we have a new patron. A um, new patron. And that is Suzanne. Thank you so Thanks, much Suzanne. for your support. Thank you. And we're excited that we can thank you on this, our 100th episode. Bow, bow, bow. Uh, <laughs> and if you a, say it, I'm going to do the earrings. <laughs> and as a, as a bit of a celebration and a thank you to you, our listeners, not just Suzanne, but also Suzanne, we're doing a merch giveaway. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> If you'd like to win a piece of merch from our store on us, entry is easy. So we've got a Google form that we'll link to on our website, thedirtpod.com, as well as on all our social media. So you don't have to be on social to access this. To nope. enter, click the link, type in your name, your email address, so we can contact you if we win, not so we can sell your data. Also, so that there'll be one entry per person. And your favorite episode of The Dirt. Yep. The giveaway is going to run for two weeks, starting when this episode drops. And then we'll pick four winners and announce them. If you win, you get to pick an item of your choice from our merch store. Don't worry, we have another Google form. Where we have <laughs> lots of fun and nerdy designs related to archaeology and anthropology. So head over to thedirtpod.com or any of our social media accounts and enter to win. Yeah. And now, um, we need to talk about the future. Um, <laughs> you, are you breaking up with me? I know. I, I told my therapist recently that, like, I've been, like, freaking out because we've been doing this for two years. So this is the longest relationship I've had. <laughs> Aww. Uh, but don't worry. We're not talking about the future of the podcast. We're, we're not dumping you. We're not asking you to move in with us. None of that. But maybe worry a little bit because we're going to talk about the future of archaeology. And the archaeology of the future. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Amber's very excited. I know nothing. What's archaeology going to look like in 50, 100, 500 years into the future? Five million. We're going to get to five million. What kind of material... (laughs) Will be excavated. What new technologies will we use? Will dating techniques still work? Amber and I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions, but we're going to do some speculating. <laughs> and, of course, we'll talk about some ongoing research that informs our speculation. First up, the defining feature of this current era of humanity might be chicken bones? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A study published in 2018 in Royal Society Open Science. Royal Society what? Open Science. Royal Where's Society. 
open science. It's a it's a uh, imperative. Ah, You're addressing the Royal Society. Okay. Well, that study suggests that the remains of the domesticated chicken, Gallus Gallus, are going to be a unique marker of our impact on the planet. So from Smithsonian Magazine and all of their pop-up ads, (laughs) get ready for some real galaxy brain-inducing chicken statistics. I bet this isn't what you expected from a hundredth episode about the future of archaeology, huh? This is also like the most like the true like banality of human existence is that the Anthropocene will be marked by like <laughs> the revolution will be in no. a chicken bucket. Just, oh God, <laughs> such a bummer. <laughs> With a standing population of more than two nope. I can't read. <laughs> oh, that hasn't changed in a hundred episodes. With a standing two. population of more than twenty two point seven Billion. Oh, God. Billion with a B. Domesticated chickens far outnumber the world's most abundant wild bird, the red-billed quilea, which has a population of about 1.5 billion. They need better PR. Now you know that. I've never heard of that bird. What? I've never heard of that bird. How can there be so many of them and I've never heard of them? They're low-profile birds. Oh. (laughs) According to James Gorman of the New York Times, if you combined the mass of all these chickens, it would be greater than that of all other birds combined. I mean, yeah. Even though, be. Amber, they are all drones. Yeah. Replaced love- <laughs> during the Reagan administration. <laughs> that includes like ostriches and stuff. Yeah, you're talking all about like other birds. High mass birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. High mass birds, high velocity birds, high ah, viscosity the, birds. The the BMI, the bird yeah. mass index. <laughs> yes. We know that that's a useless measurement. Okay. <laughs> the world is home to such a huge number of chickens because humans can't stop eating them. Thank you, Smithsonian. Chicken consumption is growing faster than the consumption of any other type of meat. More than 65 billion chickens were slaughtered in 2016 alone, and it's on pace to surpass pork soon as the world's most consumed meat. With an abundance of chicken dinners comes an abundance of chicken remains. They're not born boneless in the wild. Oh, no. In the wild, bird carcasses are prone to decay and are not often fossilized. But organic materials preserve well in landfills, which is where many chicken remains discarded by humans end up. Thus, these chicken bones don't degrade. And according to the study authors, they mummify. For this reason, lead study author Karis E. Bennett tells Sam Wong of New Scientist that chickens are, quote, a potential future fossil of this age, end quote. In addition to their sheer numbers, because chickens have been bred for size, you know, more meat. For decades now, the commercial broiler chicken has kind of unique physical features that make it easy to pick out of a chicken lineup. The researchers found that between the 14th and 17th centuries, CE, domestication caused chickens to become noticeably larger than their wild progenitors, jungle fowl. But those chickens had nothing on the fowls of today. The authors write, quote, there has been a steady increase in growth growth rate since 1964, and the growth rate of modern broilers is now three times higher than that of the red jungle fowl. So if you put a baby red jungle fowl and a baby chicken side by side and watch them for a certain amount of time, in that amount of time, the chicken would go three times as fast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining them growing like peeps when you put them in the microwave. 
Oh, I think it's exactly like that. <laughs> so, um, speaking of food, which chickens, not peeps. Um, I mean, let's nominally. Let's talk about archaeology and the global diet. Um, so in a lot of the world, well, particularly in the, the Western sort of global north of the world, uh, the human diet has become globalized. Thanks to the invention of the refrigerated shipping container, produce and meat can come from all over the world. Archaeologists use isotopic analyses, usually on teeth, sometimes on bones, on human remains to determine where an individual grew up or spent the last few months of their life. In the former case, the food and water we consume as we grow leaves a chemical signature in our teeth during the first decade or so of childhood. In the latter case, we, uh, we are what we eat. Yep. Literally. Isotopes from the food we consume affects the chemical composition of our bodies, and some of that can be traced by archaeologists using stable isotopes of elements like strontium, carbon, and nitrogen. But if we're eating food that comes from all over the world, will that affect the ability of future archaeologists to use these technologies? Turns out, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but maybe, and on the side of maybe, there's a study that was published in 2006 in the journal Environmental Research. And it talks specifically about the use of lead isotopes. Um, and the study was based in Australia. Which is why it mentions Australia a whole bunch. <laughs> I thought that would be good to clarify. Yes. Um, and that study says, since 1998, the levels of lead in air were less than 0.2 micrograms per cubic meter and would have a negligible contribution to blood lead. Blood oh. lead. <laughs> <laughs> Over the 10-year period, the ratio of lead isotopes in the diet based mainly on quarterly six-day duplicate diets. That sounds fun. God. <laughs> it increased from 16.9 to 18.3. Might not sound like much, but since it's the composition of the whole body, yeah. it really shouldn't change that much, but it did. But it did. Unless there are other sources not identified and analyzed for these adults, it would appear that in spite of our earlier conclusions to the contrary, diet does make an overall contribution to blood lead. And this is certainly the case for specific individuals. Certain population groups from South Asia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East and Europe, e.g. the UK, are unsafe. Okay. <laughs> not anymore. Not Europe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> are unsuitable for some studies as their isotopic ratios in blood are converging towards the increasing Australian values. This means that isotopic studies undertaken with a high degree of certainty of outcomes over a decade ago are now considerably more difficult, not only in Australia, but also in other countries where isotopic differences are even less than in Australia. Yeah, so there's a noticeable increase in the amount of at least lead isotopes in the blood, which means that it's going to confound some research. And presumably other isotopes are going wonky as well. Mm -hmm. And so over on the side of maybe not, um, here's something from an abstract of an article published in 2012 in PLOS One. The article is entitled, Dietary Heterogeneity Among Western Industrialized Countries Reflected in the Stable Isotope Ratios of Human Hair. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, And the abstract reads, although the globalization of food production is often assumed to result in a homogenization of consumption patterns with a convergence toward a Western style diet, the resources used to make global food products may still be locally produced. Globalization. I hate it. Gross. I hate that word. (laughs) Yeah, it's a gross word. Um, Stable isotope ratios of human hair can quantify the extent to which residents of industrialized nations have converged on a standardized diet or whether there is persistent heterogeneity and globalization among countries as a result of different dietary patterns and the use of local food products. Here we report isotopic differences among carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur isotope ratios of human hair collected in 13 Western European countries and in the USA. And so... The isotopes showed that despite a global diet, there was still regional level variation in the individual samples. Yep. And um, which is great for future archaeologists. And um, the the article says that the geographic structuring of isotopic data suggests heterogeneity in the food resources used by citizens of industrialized nations and supports the presence of different dietary patterns within Western Europe, despite globalization trends. Yeah, so just because things are glocalizing doesn't Ah. mean that everything is glocal. (laughs) Gross. Gross. Well, if you'd like to contribute to glocalization efforts, (laughs) check out these products and services. This ad. (laughs) It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, we're back and we're still thinking about the future. So what are archaeologists going to excavate besides chicken bones in the future? For one thing, we humans are a presence not just on Earth, but in space now. In 500 years, will we excavate a SpaceX rocket on the moon? Oh, I hope not. But we're definitely not the first people to think about this. <laughs> in 2016, Jeff Manaw pictured the future version of the European Grand Tour of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, and he, he did so on TheAtlantic.com. Quote, Stopping off at abandoned abbeys and half-collapsed Roman aqueducts was part of the experience, as these picturesque lumps of masonry were seen as a moral reminder of what human effort could achieve, but also a sign of how easily civilization could collapse and be steadily erased by time. 
The grand tour of the future, however, according to historian of astronomy Randall C. Brooks and conservationist Robert Barclay, might take place off the Earth entirely, involving a tour of derelict satellites and abandoned spacecraft, those ruined cathedrals of the sky. All right, Jeff. <laughs> in a paper called In Situ Preservation of Historic Spacecraft, collected in the massive 2009 Handbook of Space Engineering, Archaeology, and Heritage, which I didn't know existed, and I'm tickled to know that it does. <laughs> They specifically use the analogy of the Grand Tour to describe this vision of future tourists planning visits to preserved space vehicles. In this version of what Barclay and Brooks describe as the future of museums beyond the atmosphere, tomorrow's Grand Tourist will come face to hull with ancient spacecraft, the way economically privileged Europeans once visited Notre Dame or the Colosseum. Their new destinations will be archaeological sites in space. Sorry, archaeological sites in, in space. space. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. For an archaeologist studying satellites, this is uniquely troubling, and it means that it can be next to impossible to define an actual historic site, which is hard enough to do on this planet, for one thing. It's true. At, uh, that was not Jeff. That was me. <laughs> At best, you can supply an equation for a particular satellite's intended orbit and then wait for it to reappear there, like the so-called iridium flare. But even with geosynchronous spacecraft, you're often dealing with an unclear smudge of locational probabilities. It's like excavating the walls of Troy, only to come back the next day and find that the city has somehow moved. If archaeologists want to maintain a record of what is in orbit and to keep tabs on those objects in the future, then something beyond mere maps will be necessary. And this means reconceptualizing archaeological space itself as something that is topological rather than geographic. Oh my god, Anna, I'm having such a great time. <laughs> so Nash I look forward to the new publication of National Topologic. No? I like it. Nat um, Topo. <laughs> okay, let's talk some more about our anthropogenic legacy. Plastics. Yeah. So um this is uh, from a medium piece on their uh one zero. It's actually kind of a large piece. I am a dad. I hate that. Um, <laughs> this was written in 2019 by Thomas McMullen. As dawn cracks over the Cornish coastline with only a few seagulls and a lone dog for company, Tracy Williams goes looking for plastic. It began over 20 years ago, she tells me. My parents lived in an old house perched on the clifftop in South Devon, and we used to comb the beaches to see what had washed up. Ever since 1997, William's family would notice Lego pieces amid the sand and seaweed of England's southwestern shore, plastic octopuses, spear guns, flippers, scuba tanks, life preservers, daisies, ship rigging. She says, quote, I still remember the moment when a neighbor found one of the elusive green dragons. Even today, she signs her Christmas card to me, Mary, keeper of the green dragon. Gotta chase that dragon. Oh, gosh. All of these objects fell into the sea on February 13th, 1997, when a freak wave hit the cargo ship <laughs> Tokyo Express, knocking loose a container loaded with millions of Lego pieces. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> In 2019, brightly colored blocks still wash up on the beaches, but they're not all that Williams finds. Using her Twitter account, Lego Lost at Sea, she details toys, trainers, packaging, medical tape, and among the detritus, toy cars, models, and figurines from ancient cereal packets, some of which date from more than 50 years ago. 
Not only is plastic durable, but it's also shown itself to be incredibly mobile. As landfills close to the coastlines or rivers become eroded by water or wind, plastic can drift across vast differences thanks to atmospheric and ocean currents. As plastics drift, broken down into smaller pieces, transported to every pocket of the globe, even into our bodies, the limits of where a plastic artifact begins and ends can be difficult to trace. Back on the beach, Williams' list of dislocated detritus tells a similar story. Quote, BB gun pellets, fishing beads, hair accessories, bike reflectors, toothbrushes, car parts, fake nails, shoes, socks, pants, false teeth, fibers from concrete reinforcement, tile spacers, rowel plugs, interdental brushes, <laughs> poppet beads, cable ties, costume jewelry, KFC sporks, bookies pins, buttons, medical lancets, sticking plasters, carcass tags, syringes, biofilters from water treatment plants, purses, wallets, credit cards, synthetic clothing, cap gun rounds, smarty lids. How do you ever stem the flow? That is quite the list. Uh, it's an overwhelming sprawl, but among the mess are the pieces that anchor it. The old phone cases and worn away faces that show the plastic for what it is. Not just globalized waste, but our own lives turned toward history. Perhaps it's ultimately what is so disor disorientating about treating plastic toys as artifacts. It places our world as something that will one day come to pass. When that happens, what will future archaeologists make of it all? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's Thanks. the tone of this whole episode. <laughs> I'm like I'm over here like trying to like be profound. I'd be like, isn't this amazing? And you're like, oh. <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, it is it is profound and amazing, but also I don't know. And that's part of it. Yeah. Um so now we're headed into what might be the most mind-bendy part of this whole episode, at least for me. The trajectory of future human evolution. Because yes, evolution is still happening. How are our bodies evolving? Our culture, our languages, all of these things are mutable. So from Scientific American, uh, this is an article published in 2012. And this is about, uh, you know, genetic shifts over the past few thousand years. In a study published in 2007, Henry C. Harpending of the University of Utah, John Hawks of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and their colleagues analyzed data from the international haplotype map of the human genome. They focused on genetic markers in 270 people from four groups, Han Chinese, Japanese, Yoruba, and Northern Europeans. They found that at least 7% of human genes underwent evolution as recently as 5,000 years ago. So what was going on 5,000 years ago? So it was 3,000 BCE. What was going on then? Um, uh, it was the Bronze Age. Well, well it was yeah. before the Bronze Age in some places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 3,000 BCE, like in Mesopotamia, so the, the ancient Near East, was mm -hmm. making a turn toward urbanism. And right. they were like really getting it together. And then by the, you know, within a few hundred years, there were very established city-states and... right. Factions okay. of things. So that's what's going on there. Other okay. places, people are just like kicking it semi-nomadically with like yeah. increased agriculture. Yeah. Okay. Another study by Pardis C. Sabeti of Harvard University and her colleagues used huge data sets of genetic variation to look for signs of natural selection across the human genome. More than 300 regions on the genome showed evidence of recent changes that improved people's chance of surviving and reproducing. So that's portions of the our genetic code that basically have shifted over time. So you can 
you can see those changes and figure out when they occurred because there's something called the molecular clock that was developed. (laughs) There's okay. So um, this guy called Vince Sarich and other researchers at Berkeley actually um, in the 1960s saw that this is when um, the human genome was first starting to be understood. And they were looking at genomes of different species and they were comparing the DNA of these different species. So basically, you know how DNA is is created with different nitrogen bases, A, T, G, and C, right? So it's just long sequences of these letters, and that's that's our genes. And you can look at different species and look at different regions of the genome and compare the spellings of those strings of letters and see how many differences there are between different species. And those differences determine how genetically different those species are. And what they realized as they were conducting this research is that while genetic mutation happens randomly, over time, the rate of genetic change is actually a constant. And so what you can, yeah, so what you can do is you can look at two different species and count the number of differences in genetic spelling between their DNA. And you can use their, they figured out a variable. It was like 1.6 units of genetic change or whatever equals a million years or something like that. So you can look at two species and compute the number of genetic differences and then figure out how long it has been since those species shared a common ancestor. That's the the molecular clock. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was a detour. Evolution in general is a result of responses to the environment. And we humans have significantly altered our environment in the past 10,000 years or so. So it doesn't surprise me that there should be genetic changes in the human genome since then. Thanks, agriculture. The geographic isolation of different groups has been broached by the ease of transportation and the dismantling of social barriers that once kept racial groups apart. So there's genetic intermixing now that wasn't there before. Never before has the human gene pool had such widespread mixing of what were heretofore entirely separated local populations of our species. In fact, the mobility of humanity might be bringing about the homogenization of our species. <laughs> oh no, we're becoming glocal. No. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, natural selection in our species is being thwarted by our technology and our medicines. Er, sort of. Ah. Mm. Mm. In mm, most parts, by that that Lyft driver I had that day that I got in a fight with him. In most parts of the globe, babies no longer die in large numbers. People with genetic damage that was once fatal now live and have children. Natural predators no longer affect the rules of survival. I guess <laughs> there's not saber tooth tigers anymore, but there are stupid people. So. So just some things to bring up to to think about how we've changed in the past few thousand years. Um, For example, well, if we're talking about our species thwarting, (laughs) thwarting natural selection by our medicines, um, there is the feedback loop of developing new antibiotics, but then you know, antibiotic resistant strains of certain diseases evolving in turn. So there's that kind of give and take. So that's, that's why I think we both made that noise when we when that phrase came up, thwarted natural selection being thwarted by our medicines. It's like, well, no, there's still, yeah, we haven't fixed it, <laughs> but also things like lactose intolerance. Um, mm-hmm. That is the natural state of the human being. I say defensively. 
lactase persistence is something that has evolved in populations that have ancestors who were pastoralists, who had uh, herd animals that they got milk from. So normally in mammals, after a certain age, after we're done being uh, nursed or breastfed by our moms, then we're weaned off of milk and the enzyme that breaks down milk sugars stops being produced by the body. But in populations that are historically pastoralist, or at least had pastoralist ancestors, milk was probably a really important source of nutrients during, you know, food shortages, or just in general, a really good source of nutrients for people who were drinking animal milk other than human milk. And so it's it's also a way to um, stay hydrated in environments where the water isn't safe for humans to drink. Yes. That's another thing that makes milk drinking a boon Advantageous. for populations. Yes. Yeah. And so the ability to break down those milk sugars into adulthood was genetically advantageous for those specific populations, which is why you see in some populations, usually the ones that you can trace back to. So for example, Northern Europeans and Western Europeans tend to have had cows and sheep and goats and stuff in, in their history, even if those populations aren't, you know, necessarily farming those animals now, Mm -hmm. they have the genetic leftovers of the populations in the past that did. Whereas, for example, Japanese populations typically did not have uh, herd animals like that. They had different subsistence systems. And so typically you see a lot of lactose intolerance there because those people don't produce lactase into adulthood. And that's what—that's the enzyme that breaks down those milk sugars that otherwise, if you eat a lot of milk products and you don't have the enzyme, they just kind of sit in your gut and ferment. And then that leads to nausea and bloating and all the fun stuff. Yeah. And so it's lactase that. persistence that made, that allowed the population to survive. So the people yeah, who, exactly. the people for whom um, they continued to produce lactase, could continue to consume, like could consume like dairy products past parity and like they were able to survive and reproduce and pass that on. Yeah. Um, which is why those no, genes became more frequent in that population. Yeah. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. sort of like, it, it was a good, it was a, a like quirk, a sort of yeah. like genetic quirk that, that turned out good, was advantageous enough to affect the population. Yeah, down to the genome level. Yeah. And so this article mentioned a couple of other things that may, there was no definitive background information for this, but that may also be a result of genetic change in the past few thousand years, including increased instances of ADD and ADHD. Um, Again, big question marks here. And maybe um, celiac condition. So, you know, with agricultural change and a um, dependence on a few staple crops. Uh, maybe celiac came along with that. And that's um, gluten intolerance. So yes. when people don't have the the ability um, to digest gluten. At the end of this, I want to recommend, this isn't our book club book, but it is a fun book recommendation because one of the things that this article also talked about uh, and this set of resources that I found talked about was um, what we'll be eating in the future Um, And how that might affect our genome and specifically edible insects. So this is a book by Julie Lesnick and it is called Edible Insects and Human Evolution. And it's from the University Press of Florida. So we'll link to that on our show notes. And before we go on, let's have another quick ad break. And then Amber. Yes. 
You're going to yes! treat me to yes! <laughs> to uh, speculative evolution. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, Amber, teach me things. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've already kind of been talking about it. Like we have yeah. been speculating about evolution. Yes. Now, we can't talk about any kind of speculative evolution without taking a moment to talk about the person that really launched it as a genre, um, a paleontologist named Dougal Dixon. That's, such a, so, that's a comic book name. So like, welcome to the Dougal Dixon fangirl hour. Oh, good. Because I am good. a big fan of this guy. Um, so his 1981 book, After Man, A Zoology of the Future, is one of those things that I saw when I was probably too young to process it fully. And so it <laughs> kind of like embedded itself into my brain uh, and has been a big part of my life since, I guess, before my life, since it was published in 1981. Um, and it's something of an Audubon guide to the Crete, like, you know, like where it's like, here's this bird, here's this bird in its nest some words about the bird those audubon guides not the ones it's like go find that bird not that um, okay okay, okay. So, so an audubon guide to the creatures that inhabit our planet 50 million years from now which all of which evolved from the species that survived an extinction level extinction level event that happened right around now um, yeah so each of the animals is illustrated in portrait and then in action it's given a binomial name and a bit of information is, is shared about how they interact with their environment and sometimes other animals like other of these creatures um, right. like some are predators of the others um so this is probably my first exposure to the processes of evolution itself and really i still maintain that it's not the worst um he is a, a paleontologist by trade um and um and actually like applies these sort of the fundamentals of evolution and and sort of illustrates kind of their logical conclusion of like this is this is what it like this is what this evolved from and so here's an example um so uh schlocky sci-fi tv fans may be familiar with some of these animals even if you don't know after man um if you've seen the show primeval have you seen the show primeval no, this seems like a show. I don't know. It seems like something you would have watched. I I've know. seen it. I know. So, so primeval is um, there. It's you know some like UK based entity that like deals with like time aberrations or something. And one of the things that they reckon with is the future predator. They just call it the predator, but not the but, predator. Okay, but not predator. Um, yeah. So it's just because okay. they're like because it is a predator. 
and it is from the future. So that's, yep. <laughs> that's it. Um, and so it's thought that that future predator is believed to be based on Dixon's Night Stalkers. And so Night Stalker is sort of the common name given to these little scary, well, they aren't little scary bat guys whose wings have evolved into four limbs. Um, and so they, they've like yeah. developed limbs. So they run around now and they've got these nope. like little, nope. like, oh yeah. Um, and they still run around aided by echolocation, which makes them tough to evade. Bad. Um, yeah. If you click on the, the link above there where it says monsterbrains.blogspot.com. Click on that real quick. Okay. Pop that open. Yep. Scroll down. Oh, there's one. Ah! <laughs> and yeah, so it's the... Okay, but the that nice, illustration but, is a little derpy. That makes yeah, it kind of better. Yeah, that's like what makes this perfect for like a seven-year-old to find. So the Night Stalker's like binomial name is Menambulus Perhoridus. And so he has fun. We're having fun here. Um, I like the, these guys above, the Fleur. Oh, yeah. Which are... The little, little like bat-eared flower-faced guys that are just bah! they've they've evolved to look like flowers so when insects land on them they can gobble them yeah. up yeah so I yeah. mean that tracks yeah yeah so I'll include a link to the show oh, notes I like this okay, yeah I like right this it's more great than I thought I would no yeah. this is great Anna <laughs> yeah so, but your description of like a four-legged bat creature really I well the one in primeval is like pee scary okay. um. But it's oh, sort what of are these little bunnies with beaks. <laughs> what is that? Anyway, oh, I'm yeah, going to close so, this because I will be. All right. All it's so fun. It's so fun. You didn't get to the growth. <laughs> oh, no. It's it's a, it's like a goat. Um, so I'll include a link to the show notes, the link that link that Anna just looked at. Um, and so <laughs> and it's just some of the images pulled from after man. So you can see the truly iconic work. But I recommend you get your hands on a copy of that book. But this still okay. is this still is a the book insist. club recommendation. So, After Man was something of a trilogy series with After Man. It was the After series, and so After Man was the first one, and then the New Dinosaurs. So After Dinosaurs, um, that one was released in 1988 about dinosaurs if the extinction hadn't occurred, and and seeing okay, like yeah. where else they would go. So we're not a show about dinosaurs, so you can look at that in your own time. But in 1990, he released Man After Man. Which is our book club recommendation. Spoiler. Yeah. Um, and so it follows the arc of Homo sapiens from the 22nd century CE onwards. So at the start of the book, the world is kind of like a blade runnery hellhole thanks to climate change. And as I, I read it as an adult, I see capitalism. And it's in this world that we meet two heavily engineered humans, one who kicks it in space. It's like a, it's basically like, human bits inside like a capsule um, okay it's it's sterile it can't it can't reproduce um and the okay. other who kicks it in the ocean and then there are two standard issue humans so there's one that lives in this like busted post-apocalyptic city and his name is kyushu kristan and then there's this quote genetically perfect square-jawed blonde guy on a spaceship oh, don't like that no well it's like that. Th this is i mean it is the, this is what the society is doing where like yeah, yeah. you've got this square jawed blonde guy on a spaceship destined to populate some other planet also Anna yep. his name is Jimez Smoot <laughs> do you know what a smoot is? I, no what's a smoot? <laughs> it's a measurement it's a unit of measurement um, it <gasps> comes from MIT and there's a bridge from across the, the Charles River 
that mm-hmm. goes to MIT mm-hmm. that has markings along it. And it was the height of uh, an undergrad there. I forget his first name, but his last name was Smoot. Was his and first name Jim S? It was. It definitely wasn't Jim S, but his <laughs> name was Smoot. I think maybe was rushing a fraternity or some like society. And his thing was that he had to lay down and then they would mark, you know, from his feet to his head. And then he'd move and lay down again. And he measured the the length of that whole bridge in smoots. That was like in the 80s, I think, or the 70s even. Um, and it's still marked in smoots to this day. And that wow. is a recognized, though silly, unit of measurement. Well, so we've got a Jim as smoot. Um, Your hero uh, and mine. Um, no, he, he is perhaps the villain of the piece. Okay. Um, also, the villain is the ravages of time. So amazing to begin with that, you know, we've got two types of engineered humans, two, two lots for homo sapiens. Uh, okay. I see. Like that's, see. that's very much what it is. You've got the, like, cause Kyushu and his family, they're in, it's, they're possibly in New York, but like climate change has taken it to the point where like it's flooded. From that point, we check in at increasingly distant intervals and we see how Homo sapiens ultimately bites it as a species through its hubris. And Ooh. and so, yeah, so you've got Homo sapiens who are, they're sort of like augmenting themselves technologically to try to like eke it out right. like, on Earth. And then so that fails. And then there are these engineered humans that they like sort of create for purposes and then kind of get introduced into the wild like from a purely scientific <laughs> <Go> feral <laughs> well they, they like like evolve they, it's so it's sort of like creating something in a lab so like okay. they're they're not okay, I see. They're, they're not introduced people. to the wild on purpose okay yeah and because and it seems to be like for science but like once human bites humanity bites it the engineered humans start evolving over time in response to environmental pressures so you see, you watch this through vignettes profiling individuals from each of these species. So okay. like over time they change and then they speciate. And, and did so, you did you say that this was an illustrated book too, or is this? More oh yeah, a, like okay. it is. It is very like illustration driven. All of these are very illustration driven. That's cool. Uh, yeah, and so there's a handy family tree chart which like really gives it a textbook vibe, mm-hmm. and like all of them, it seems like you are. It's this. It's this intersection between. Learning about species, like as if you're in some kind of like terrestrial, like zoology book or something. Well, not even just terrestrial because we got those aqua people. Um, yep. Piscanthropus is, oh. is what that is. Yeah. Um, and so five million years go by and and it gives you a chance to think about like what it means to be human. And, so as, and you start to think about this more as the descendants of Homo sapiens become further and further from anything we recognize. And yet there's sort of like glimmers of our best and worst qualities throughout. And um, and like the descendant of Jim as Smoot comes back because they. OK, like, spoiler. To, well, I mean, it's it's kind <laughs> of a spoiler because it's not really a spoiler because like the, the frontispiece of the book has like uh, descendant of Jim as Smoot, like riding a creature. So, OK, yeah, you kind of see it coming. It's that like biting, almost nihilistic kind of science fiction that you can pump directly into my veins. Like, it's, okay, it's so good. I yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, and you listeners, should. you should do that as well if you feel like it. Yeah, and while we're on the subject of science fiction that you can pump directly into my veins, I'll, I'll hook up the IV. <laughs> Let's talk about Afrofuturism. Let's. 
Yes. So this is pulled from C. Brandon Ogbunu's article, How Afrofuturism Can Help the World Mend. Um, and that's from Wired magazine. <clears throat> when most people think of Afrofuturism today, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Wakanda comes to mind, an African country that hides advanced technology from the world. Within Wakanda, Afrofuturism manifests most explicitly in the award-winning fashion and set design, a hypnotic blend of African traditional art and dress, cyberpunk, and space opera. While highly visible examples like Black Panther certainly qualify, Afrofuturism has more traditionally lived in the subgenres of literature, philosophy, music, fashion, and other aesthetics. Dubbing something Afrofuturistic, says renowned sociologist Alondra Nelson, is, quote, very much in the eye of the beholder, and this is a good thing. Afrofuturism should be a big tent of expanding the borders of the possibilities for Black life, end quote. Expansive as it is, Nelson, a professor of the Institute for Advanced Study and pioneering scholar of Afrofuturism, offered a tidy yet illuminating definition. Afrofuturism describes, quote, visions of the future, including science, technology, and its cultures in the laboratory and social theory and in aesthetics through the experience and perspective of the African diasporic communities. In all of Afrofuturism's many forms, questions are projected about the Black experience into the future. As technology is a cultural instrument through which we can understand and build the future, Afrofuturistic ideas often involve imaginations or analyses of how technology intersects with Black politics or aesthetics. As Nelson notes, quote, a facet of Afrofuturism that should not get overshadowed is Black people's longstanding, innovative, and critical engagement with science and technology, end quote. Why do we care what the Afrofuturist has to say? And why would we suspect that their answers could be would differ from that of an average futurist. It is because the Black experience is defined by a historical struggle for existence, the right to live, to be considered a person, to be afforded basic rights, in pursuit of political, social, economic equality. Because of this, the Afrofuturist can see the parts of the present and future, the parts of the present and future that reside in the status quo's blind spots. Futurists ask what tomorrow's hoverboards and flying cars are made of. Afrofuturists ask who will build them. And does their commercial use fall out of their utility and military? And does their commercial use fall out of their utility in military or law enforcement? Futurists labor over questions about the nature of android consciousness and empathy. Afrofuturists might ask how race might be wired into android consciousness, whether the android would be whether the Android world would be as divided as ours is. These are simple but non-trivial questions. Their, their answers contain the necessary details for building science fiction worlds that are truly convincing, which is one of the sole charges of good science fiction, or real worlds that science fiction makes us to aspire to. We can ask analogous questions of modern society, speculating what our world would look like after experiencing a triad of world-changing current events, the largest pandemic of the century, a social movement that challenges the institutions of policing and criminal justice, and an upcoming presidential election that almost certainly serves as a referendum on democracy in the United States, and the legitimacy of white nationalism-driven fascism globally. globally. We should ask Afrofuturism what it thinks of these events. While the specific answers might enlighten, real insights are found in the act of answering, as it forces us to reconsider and augment our predictions with layers that are missing. This that's a very good article. Isn't it? Yeah, it's so good. So like, that's just a little bit of it. So the whole article is over on Wired. Um, and if you're interested in the capital F future including Afrofutures, check out the Long Now Foundation 
just learned about them. They're so cool. They're based in San Francisco and they're dedicated to long-term thinking and considering the next 10,000 years, which ah. is a, it's a fundamentally hopeful endeavor. They host seminars and talks that reflect on the deep past and they contemplate the distant future. And you can watch all of them online if you want to get your mind blown. Like they have a bunch of talks from like people whose work I like a lot. Um, and then like folks that you may not consider think about the future. They've got one from like David Byrne from Talking Heads and like one from Neil Gaiman. But just now, just a couple weeks ago, a talk on Afrofuturism happened and that video will be available soon. Or if you're listening in the future... It's available now. Whoa. (laughs) Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, right. Um, And that's why it's so important to like think about these things. That's why we got to ask about the future, Anna. No, I I am all for asking about the future. I just need to do it in small, dedicated (laughs) chunks of time so that I don't lose a day. So what you're what you're ready, what you're saying is that you're now ready to make this even harder for us to understand. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk. About languages of the future. This is uh, from an article by uh, Simon Horobin on the conversations from 2015. One way of predicting the future is to look back at the past. The global role English plays today as a lingua franca, used as a means of communication by speakers of different languages, has parallels in the Latin of pre-modern Europe. Having been spread by the success of the Roman Empire, classical Latin was kept alive as a standard written medium throughout Europe long after the fall of Rome. But the vulgar Latin, as in common, not just rude. Not sweary. That dang Latin. But the vulgar Latin used in speech continued to change, forming new dialects, which in time gave rise to the modern Romance languages, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, and Italian. Similar developments may be traced today in the use of English around the globe, especially in countries where it functions as a second language. New Interlanguages are emerging in which features of English are mingled with those of other native tongues and their pronunciations. For example, despite the Singaporean government's attempts to promote the use of standard British English through the Speak Good English movement, the mixed language known as Singlish remains the variety spoken on the street and in the home. Spanglish, a mixture of English and Spanish, is the native tongue of millions of speakers in the United States, suggesting that this variety is emerging as a language in its own right. Meanwhile, the development of automatic translation software, such as Google Translate, will come to replace English as the preferred means of communication employed in the boardrooms of international corporations and government agencies. Spelling and pronunciation are shifting from received pronunciation to American spelling and sound. So just as an exercise, if you if you happen to want to do this, listen to the way that actors speak in a movie from the 1940s, 50s, or 60s. There's a unique sound to the words and cadence that just really isn't around anymore in just conversational spoken English. So the future for English would seem to be one of multiple Englishes, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So Amber, will you please... Teach me about futuries. Well, Anna, in order to talk about the language of the future, we need to pop back to the past for a moment. Chuvi parolas Esperanton? Niet. Ah, so, I, do, so, I don't know. So, no. so you don't speak Esperanto? I well, do not. Do you know what Esperanto is? I do. Okay. I, had, I think um, I have a copy of Winnie the Pooh in Esperanto. Oh my God. Or had at some point. Oh, geez. So Esperanto is an artificial language that was developed by... 
Polish oculist. Oh, I read that as a cultist and was like, <laughs> I didn't know that. No. Polish oculist L.L. Zamenhof in the late 19th century CE, and he figured it'd be a great lingua franca for the future. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, Esperanto is relatively simple for Europeans to learn because its words are derived from roots commonly found in the European languages, particularly the Romance languages. Orthography is phonetic, all words being spelled as pronounced. Grammar is simple and regular. There are characteristic word engines for nouns, adjectives, and verbs. Nouns have no gender, which is exactly the future I want, and are marked by the ending O. The plural is indicated by an ending with O-J, pronounced Oi. The objective, accusative case by on, plural, oin. And so you've got words like amico, meaning friend, amikoi, friends, and then amikon, friend, and the accusative. So I hug my friend. No, I was saying, I was like, I would put that in the date of, shut up, Amber. So uh, amikoin, friends, accusative. There's only one definite article, la. So la, amico, the friend. And there's no indefinite article. Oh, so there's no a friend. Yeah, it would just okay. be friend, and you would figure that out. Adjectives end in a, so bona amico, good friend, and take plural and objective endings to agree with the nouns. So la bone amicoi estas tie. The good friends are here. Yeah, me havas bonen amicoin. I have good friends. Verbs Aww. are all regular and have only one form for each tense or mood. They are not inflected for person or number. Me have us, we have us, she have us, ili have us. I have, you have, she has, they have. There is an extensive set of suffixes that can be added to to that can be added to word roots to allow various shades of meaning or newly derived forms. Compound words are also used. End quote. <laughs> So while it hasn't become the language that everyone's using, like Zamenhof had wished, there's still plenty of societies dedicated to, like I don't know, chatting in it. And there's more than 30,000 books that have been published in Esperanto, including, including Anna's Winnie, Winnie the, the Pooh. Pooh. <laughs> there's also a 1966 horror movie called Incubus starring a super handsome young William Shatner. Wait, it was filmed in Esperanto? It's in Esperanto. Yeah, I found it on YouTube. I, there's a link to it. You could, I was watching it before we started recording. Um it's it's like it's very much one of those maybe I don't know if you ever like went to like weird house parties where you like go in the no, room and there's like <laughs> also I think like I'm the person that hosts these parties that you like go in the room and it's just like some like guy you've like never seen in your life and like uh, there's a weird like old timey movie on the screen and he's just yeah. like sitting there and like doesn't make a conversation with you. It's that movie that if you have been in that situation, it was almost definitely this movie. <laughs> Okay. It has like that vibe, like weird house party vibe. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I, um, I get the vibe. I just don't have the experience. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yet. Um, and, and there's also a singer named Christina Casella who covers pop songs on YouTube. There's Neat. a lot of Esperanto on YouTube, but she like, I think she kind of got some fame when she covered um, the Adele song. The one, Hello. Hello. Yeah. That one. She it covered me. That one. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of Esperanto out there for the consumption. Apart from the bias toward Indo-European, namely Romance languages and the general not catching honestness of Esperanto, there are some critics. One such critic is linguist Justin B. Rye, a Scottish guy I found inside the internet and with whom <laughs> I am now firmly obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. You sent me this. <laughs> so I am confused. One, 
So on his website, Coom Manifesto, which is like very charmingly Web 1.0, he performs really several thought experiments, including Pleistocenes, and uh-huh. which he he provides some brilliant speculative fiction, and he calls it that. It's speculative fiction uh, uh-huh. about how language could have come about in the first place. And then he writes this really fun story in, in speculative Neanderthal language. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really fun. I wish you had scrolled down more and not just like panicked. <laughs> I did. Like, no. I got to the page and I was already stressed that day and I was just like, <laughs> no, it's too much. And I couldn't. I'm sorry. So I'll go back. As, as if that weren't fun enough, he also takes a stab at futurese in which he plots how American English might evolve into the 31st century CE. As any listener of our historical linguistics episode already knows, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna have a guest on. Though, we're gonna get one. Soon. We're, we're gonna yeah. get one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but but our boy here provides examples of what late American would sound like. It's the American language, or should I say, Megan language? Huh. Huh. And that you know what what that sounds like is um Simlish. Which is (laughs) which is another kind of language all its own that we really didn't explore. But I wonder if Simlish has syntax or is it Well no, but it does. It does. It does. Yeah. Okay. Well So there's that one one last thing before we end transmission. What about when we want to communicate something to the future? Like, uh, what is like, that? Is we, it Voyager? The yeah, we, like where we the, like sent the satellites to space. The, yeah, where we sent those uh, gold. Those Voyager, Voyagers one, one and two. I know, yeah. but I panicked because we just started watching Star Trek Voyager, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no, is that real? Yeah, <laughs> or did so, I just? <laughs> yeah, so not not really, because that's well, us sending something out, and like it will get to someone in the future. This is when we are in the present trying to convey something to the future. Okay, like right here. So, an episode of the podcast Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, which is very good, um, called Ten Thousand Years, asks that very question with respect to the issue of needing to warn trespassers in the far distant future against exposing themselves to the nuclear waste that is currently stored underground. In 10,000 years, it's still going to be deadly. So how do you tell someone that? How can we create a sign that transcends cultural context or language? And this is a project that a group of of folks undertook of like, how can we label this? And so it's so fascinating. And as you can probably guess, exactly the type of thing I enjoy spending my time thinking about. So pop (laughs) one over to the 99PI blog and check out that episode. And also there's an associated multimedia rich blog post the, that sort of tackles the issue of communicating. And it's like, mm. it's it's a really great sort of illustration of how semiotics works and like what semiotics is and like how you need to signify something, what signs do you use and how right. do they have meaning. So all oh, that's really that. cool. Yeah. yeah. Be and don't forget this, this week's book club book is Man After Man. Man After Man. By Dual Dixon. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to us panic and speculate and mostly me panicking um we will be back in your ears soon with new episodes which you can find on apple podcasts spotify google play wherever else you like to listen and don't forget to sign up for our merch giveaway you can find the link to the form on facebook where we are the dirt podcast on twitter where we're at dirt podcast and on instagram 
in our uh, Instagram bio where we are at the dirt pod. Yeah. And you could also find all of that as well as all of our episodes, including uh, from the, the, the dark days of our, our early apps all the way through oh, wait, episode 100. I wouldn't say of, dark days. They're just like kind of sonically dark. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> And all of that is at thedirtpod.com. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, really, really, truly for getting us to 100 episodes. We love doing this. And we love that we have you out there listening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We love you. All right. Bye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.